Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. In this episode, Jana Manuel Palai revisits the Madras College of Arts and Crafts, the first British colonial art school set up in India. Through the post-independence practice, and striking monochrome works of A.P. Santanaraj. My name is Jana Manuel Pillai. I'm the director of the Noble Sage Art Collection. And this exhibition is kind of a solo show around Santanaraj, A.P. Santanaraj. And it also has supporting work by about 11 artists who knew Santanaraj or studied under him or taught him or was influenced by him. And all of these artists passed through the Madras College of Arts and Crafts in what we now know as Chennai in India. It was the first art school officially set up by the British during the colonial period in 1850. What was the school like? It was set up to make use of the skill and workmanship that was kind of inherent in Tamil Nadu, the state. And it was very rough and ready So it was set up in um, what was then Madras by Alexander Hunter. It was the first British art school, but it was still in very rudimentary form. It would have been a classic uh, British academic kind of setup. At the very beginning, it was very craft-orientated, but it grew into those kind of technique genres of sculpture and a lot of figure drawing and so on, which you can go and see even if you go there now. After independence in 1948, the school was renamed the Madras Government College of Arts and Crafts and its first principal, D.P. Roy Chowdhury, changed the way that the school was run. Tell me about that period and how the school developed. D.P. Roy Chowdhury had studied a strong British education at that school, a British art education. He taught in a very traditional British way, academic painting, figurative work, uh, figurative sculpture, very much a Kensington style of teaching. And yeah, there was like an academic rigour that we would recognise. It was when K.C.S. Panika took over as principal and Estanapal as well, who's in this show. He was really very important in the Madras art movement, the modern art movement. Um, and he taught Santanaraj, he taught many of the artists in here. That's when things really changed. That's when a kind of breaking away from British tutelage occurred. Really, that's the lineage that you can see in this show. And some of the students became the leaders of modern and contemporary Indian art. The best known was perhaps K.M. Adimulam, but you focus on A.P., that's Andrew Peter Santanaraj, who engaged with both abstract and figurative subject matters, but really crucial to his work, From the start was his love of the line, and we're surrounded by these amazing, very stark black and white works. Who was he, and how did he come to practice in this style? I met A.P. Santanaraj in 2007. He was 75, or thereabouts, and I'd read about him, but I'd heard about him through word of mouth, the kind of the influence he had on the younger generation that were taught by him and how he was kind of seen as kind of legendary in Chennai. And everyone would say there is nothing like Santanaraj's style. Uh, even Adimulam, who you mentioned, he would say also there's nothing like Santanaraj's style, his pen line particularly. 
I went to his home in Tiruvannamalai two years before he passed away. And I sat down with him and we sourced most of the collection in this room. What I was astonished by was just how sharp he was. You could see he's like a born teacher. I could see how inspiring he would be to be sat with him and to be uh, learning about drawing. I've got a video in this show where I'm interviewing him about how he works. And he, he brings abstraction and, and figuration together. They're happening at the same time, essentially. And he has just as much in common with Indian fresco painting as he has with Jackson Pollock. It brings together this very dynamic way of finding a figurative source, a figurative representation in his work. It's John Emmanuel Pillai for the Noble Sage Art Gallery. I'm standing here with Mr. Santanaraj, who's a very esteemed artist in uh, Madras, Chennai, in, in, in South India. We are from the imitation or to become a substandard painter, you have to understand this science, the basic thing, in any work of art. So to me, the space and the line becomes greater important. These are <laughs> one of the most important principles at the government college uh, of, uh, of arts and crafts in Chennai. The line is not the realistic concept of a, the foot. It is the aspect in which the form is separated because the space consists of light. Temporary abstract art again should go back to the individual's ability of his own convictions as to how he can incorporate his concept, the visual concept, added to the abstract. That is what was my uh, Prime concern, or rather, what is my prime concern? Yeah. Otherwise, I'll become one of the hundreds of painters yeah. only doing abstraction. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to be that. I, I can't be that. No. We're really lucky to have you. Thank you so much. And it's that line. I mean, he talked about that line all the time about it being guided by divinity, about it being destructive but then creative, and opening up a work as well as closing it down. You brought up there his plural influences and also the fact that he was guided by divinity. He was a devout Christian, but he also drew a lot from Hindu religious influences, especially the Shivu Nataraja, this symbol of creation and destroying in its wake in order to form life. Many of the artists that we see on display here draw from different religions. There's Alfonso Doss, who was nicknamed Reverend Doss, Premlatha Sashadri too, who drew a lot from Zen Buddhism in her works. What does the diversity of religious influences we see on display tell us about the diversity of religions practiced in southern India? Religion is just embedded in Tamil Nadu because there's strong, strong Christianity. It's known for its strength of Hinduism, like a very traditional Hinduism. Then you have Buddhists, you have Jains, you have this kind of plethora of different religions, and Muslims as well, represented there. So you've got this whole range of religions and deities and uh, worship styles that naturally, I think, seeps into the work of Indian artists, certainly in the South. And when they created their first dealings in modern art in the 50s and 60s, naturally it came through symbols, through the temple paintings, you know, and iconography and so on. Santanaraj, he didn't actually use Shivanadaraja in his work, but the idea of creating and destroying to produce something, to produce energy, 
that's kind of important to his work. I was particularly drawn to see Dakshinamurti's 21st century works. His faces are almost Picasso-like in form, almost mask-like. And you mentioned Panica earlier. He was the outspoken scholar who actively pushed for a more nativist route of modern art, which was inspired by not just artisan imagery, but that religious iconography. How do these artists encourage us to rethink, perhaps, ideas around primitivism? That's a really good question. This shows is a snapshot of this period of Southern Indian art and how it evolved in that period. And primitivism only has a kind of a meaning in the West where it was coined, where it became about framing the other. Whereas in India, it's not a thing. So nativism is quite different, I would say, in the sense that it has an emphasis on sourcing from one's own iconography, one's own religious kind of imagery, one's own folklore. So it's kind of internal, it's more reflexive, I guess. Primitivism doesn't really have a place in this show, I would say, though I do agree that Dakshinamurti having Picasso elements in his work in some ways is primitivist in the sense that he's sourcing from Picasso, who's somewhere else. He's the other, Picasso is the other. And I like to look at it like that. Many of the artists in this room draw a lot on 17th century European art too. We see Peter Paul Rubens and Diego Velazquez in some of the works. Mm. Just to bring it back though to Subtanaraj, you mentioned how he became the college principal between 1985 and 1990 and is remembered as much as a teacher as he is an artist in his own right. How important was education and community practice at the time? It was hugely important. After Panika and Danapal, those next principal principles, Alfonso Dos, Santana Raj, leadership was really crucial. There was the blossoming of the art world in Chennai with the Cholomandal Art Village starting up and that finding its feet and becoming well known um, not far from the government college and you've got these artist circles strengthening and so yeah the kind of direction of Alfonso Dos, Santana Raj and other artists like Abi Baskaran, uh, Dakshinamurti in sculpture the way that they push forward, it was a very exciting time. Historically, interest has tended towards the schools in Bombay, Baroda, Calcutta and Delhi, and the Madras College of Arts is probably the least documented of all of the art schools. But you've said that this sidelining actually allowed a very particularly southern idiom to flourish. What do you think the legacy of that school is on contemporary Indian art today? I think there's a deep-set traditional core, a core that kind of in the south, in Madras, there's deep, deep tradition Indian values that are embedded in the works. How they differ from Delhi and Baroda and Bombay is that there's this slower, more methodical evolution that happened because the attention wasn't on it. So it was able to evolve at a slower pace that enabled a kind of authenticity within the work that is really, really powerful to behold. 
Many listeners might be familiar with artists who moved from India to practice in London and in various diasporas, like Lancelot Ribeiro, who we talk about on another episode of Empire Lines. You're the director of the Noble Sage Gallery, which is based in London. What is the status of these artists within the contemporary art market now? They are collected and they're seen, you know, it's kind of tricky because you shouldn't need to have come to London and gained a London status to be kind of included in the canon. I think that's what happens, is that London, New York, Paris, they're kind of um, stamps of acceptance. Those reasons are often economic and sociopolitical. That is true with someone like Ribeiro and Sousa and so on. There is that stamp of authority that London gives. But at the same time, that will change, because the Indian art market like the one in China and in other areas of the world, in some areas of Africa, for example, are blossoming. They're becoming stronger and stronger. People are buying and collecting art. They're not relying on um, these major traditional spaces as much possibly as before. I think that it's all changing. It's all up for grabs. Jana, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Not at all. I really enjoyed it. A.P. Santanaraj, 1932-2009, modern and contemporary art from South India, ran at the Brunei Gallery, SOAS, in London, until the 23rd of September, 2023. This episode marks 55 years since Madras State in India was renamed Tamil Nadu. You can find more at the Noble Sage Art Collection, online and in London. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.